It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everybody, my name is Nathan, I'm Master and I did this podcast. This is a continuation, uh, you could call it part four even, of a conversation between Wendy and Alex Benham. It is about the coronavirus, so you may either wish to go back and listen to those previous episodes if you haven't done, you may wish instead to skip this episode entirely. Thanks for listening regardless, and come on you Spurs. Stepping away from the Premier League briefly, because the Premier League, although... It's not perfect. The Premier League has has a system, has an approach, has, as you say, got lucky so far. But you know, has, has certainly done better than I thought. I'm, I'm happy to I'll put on record that the Premier League has handled this way better than I expected. Um, lower leagues is different, though. So Mark Lynch, who is a Shrewsbury and a Spurs fan, he says, as a lower league fan, I'm pessimistic um, that we can continue long term with the lack of testing going on. I can't believe the PFA have just sat back. And let that go on when they have the funds to help their members stay safe. And I remember, Alex, that you were tweeting about the outbreak at Leighton Orient. You you um you had a, a series of tweets about that situation. Can you explain why that situation concerned you so much and and give Mark a response? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a really good question from Mark, and um, yeah, a really important one. And I think it's important that we don't just get obsessed about uh, the Premier League. And I think it's a really good thing actually about all of the questions that we received. They were all quite attentive to. Uh, the fact that the football pyramid is much bigger and much more important than just the very pinnacle. So for anyone who doesn't know, in September, the EFL quietly made the decision to stop mandatory weekly testing on the frankly absurd basis that they hadn't had any positive results, up, hadn't had many res- positive results up to that point. So basically they said, we don't need to keep testing because we haven't been picking up many positive results at the point of the pandemic when they had low numbers of community transmission. So I won't get into that decision because it it makes me extremely angry. Um, Instead, championship players would only be tested after international breaks and League One and League Two players would only be tested if they themselves left on international duty or took a long break from the club. For the clubs, testing was becoming simply unaffordable. It was supposedly costing them anywhere between 10,000 and 30,000 each week and to a Premier League club, that is absolutely nothing. To a League One or League Two club, that is an astonishing amount of money. Or to a Championship, uh, 
club at the bottom of the championship, especially with no fans coming in. So I can understand why that was so hard for the clubs to keep funding. Um, on the 15th of September, the Daily Mail reported some truly extraordinary quotes from an anonymous source within the game. Uh, I don't have any idea who that might have been, but the quotes bear repeating. So the source said, This is a recipe for disaster. When you think how many players who have tested positive have not shown any obvious symptoms, it could get out of control very quickly. It is going to get very complicated when Premier League clubs face EFL clubs and players have not been tested for a month or more. Who knows where that could end? More importantly, this is people's health. It is no longer minimising the risk of transmission. That is the biggest concern. End quote. So the Premier League clubs were obviously worried and so were those. So those clubs, those Premier League clubs playing EFL teams in the League Cup agreed to pay for a round of testing. Tottenham did this for their opponents, Leighton Orient, who then went on to report a number of positive cases on September the 21st. Now, no one's quite sure how many positive tests this were actually was, but I've heard it was as many as 18 players and staff who actually tested positive for coronavirus. This serious outbreak within a club demonstrated that the virus can spread freely despite supposed social distancing and symptom reporting measures in the EFL. The lives and livelihoods of all those players had been endangered by their unsafe work environment. In some ways, the size of the outbreak ensured it was picked up by PCR testing, but it was a very close call for Tottenham as well. So I think the Leighton Orient case, which happened in the context of a much lower number of COVID-19 cases nationally in September, demonstrates that League One, League Two, and maybe the Championship are going to struggle to carry on indefinitely. Like, I have huge problems with the testing program, but simply not testing is <laughs> a frankly extraordinary decision and one that I, I fear may be very legally actionable in the future. Wow, interesting. Um, I mean, I, I would... I wish I could throw you off the podcast for quoting the Daily Mail, but unfortunately, I have some skeletons in my closet with regard to that uh, particular <laughs> publication. I did uh, submit back in the day some um, some some football writing for the Daily Mail, which I deeply regret. But there we go. Um, brilliant answer once again, Alex. You're, this is amazing public service you're doing here. Um, <laughs> next one is from James Dickens lovely man is james i've I've met him and uh he's a he's a great follow on twitter as well james says what is alex's opinion of elite football continuing and youth football being stopped yeah this is a great question again um so i'm probably not someone that should be making a judgment on this i think with these kind of like very close calls on on direct safety you know this should obviously be in the hands of someone with a lot more expertise and, and training than myself um so I will give an educated answer, but it shouldn't be considered in any way definitive and, and I don't think anyone should base actual practice of it. Um, if you've got kids playing football, don't don't base what you're doing on, on what I'm about to say. So I think the risk of actually playing football outside is relatively low, as we talked about on the previous podcasts, um, but there are all of the other elements of playing football to consider. So there's travelling, changing, socialising... And while close contacts in the context of a football game are relatively relatively infrequent, they may be very frequent if you then get in a car with a load of your mates to get back from football training. Um, if we close the schools, we should probably consider stopping youth football just as another part of the circuit break measure. But then again, if we're keeping schools open, it makes stopping youth football a bit of a nonsense. I, I very much understand people's confusion when we are pushing kids into 
poorly ventilated classrooms but not allowing them to play football outside that is clearly a nonsense and i really understand people's frustration with these kind of absurd contradictions that the government's rules are are throwing up my major point on this again would be if we suppress the virus and institute a proper fine test trace isolating support system then we can all play football safely again i'm missing football hugely i i'm a very keen and very bad five-a-side player Hmm. i haven't played since the start of the first lockdown i really miss playing football regularly but i just think that all of the bits on either side of the game getting in and out of the the five-a-side pitch hanging around with people is just too much risk at the moment so Hmm. Until we have suppression, until we have a proper fine test trace isolating support system, let's let's just spend a few weeks doing that. Let's get the virus under control and then we can then we won't have to make these kind of judgment calls anymore. We won't have to weigh safety on one hand and health and exercise on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, we shouldn't be putting, being put in a constant position where we're having to do these kind of toss ups. It's it's profoundly ethically wrong and it's it's I think a great unspoken uh, nightmare that the the government has thrown us into, where we are constantly having to make these these calls. We shouldn't be having to make them. We shouldn't be putting in positions where we're having to to put health on one side and exercise and well being on the other. The only thing I'd add is, if you were playing football and no longer can play football, just or your children are uh, no longer playing football, just bear in mind that there are lots of of safe means of exercise right now that you can replace that football with, and I think it's really important for everyone that that happens yeah yeah absolutely uh lf who is frazzled did on twitter he says what long-term effects for good might come out of this pandemic more hygienic humans less flu deaths this season due to face mask wearing prevalence what do you think alex what what kind of positives might we see come from this i mean i don't know i always i always struggle to kind of come up with with positives out of this because it's those positives were all inherent with our, within society already. They're not things that are being produced by the pandemic. They're being produced by mm. us. Um, it's You kind of get into this strange kind of alienation where people say, oh, this only came about because of the, because of the pandemic. But all of those capacities were already inherent within, within society. So, you know, improving sick pay, improving healthcare, coming up with more equitable ways of accessing education, accessing healthcare you know, those are things that we should have done anyway and will be crucial mm. to preventing another <laughs> pandemic. Um, so, yeah, I I dislike this kind of, like, upside-downside thinking because I think it traps us into looking at uh, looking at the pandemic in quite a limited way. But, yeah, um, there will be less flu deaths this season, almost undoubtedly. Um, I hope that that leads to a reconsideration of Britain's frankly bizarre objections to wearing masks on normal, non-pandemic years. Um you know, it's a strange cultural quirk that Britain thinks that wearing masks is in some way not a sensible idea the rest of the rest of the time if you're feeling ill or if you're concerned about protecting your health. So, mm. yeah, if, if that's something that comes out of it, that's not a bad thing. But I would also caution against the idea that these are these are effects that can only come about as a result of the pandemic. We should have done these things already. <laughs> it's just taken this to change our minds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's simple. When you... Think about things that have affected you in a in a positive way. I mean, likewise for me, there have been very few. But um, I have learned that I can work from home. I, I never thought that I would be able to comfortably or enjoyably work from home. Um, and I definitely prefer working in the office and seeing my colleagues and socialising with my colleagues during the, during the working day and even just walking between meetings and that kind of thing. But um, 
when you think of the, the commute time that you get back from working from home, it yeah. could have a real impact on work-life balance, which, you know, in my, in my case, it frees me up to do more podcasting. So yeah. that's, it's win-win, but it's the same for everyone. You know, you, you can make real time savings. And I'd like to think that after this, I'll do a balance. I'll perhaps do three days from home, two days in the office or the opposite. But uh, that, that's definitely been a positive for me. And I'm sure other people have found some, some sort of small positives amidst this horror. Um, Russ Green says, where is the best quality data for assessing the latest status? Who's, who best speaks truth into the reality of this? This is uh, a good question because it's one I can answer in under like 30 seconds, which I'm sure everyone will appreciate. Um, honestly, Russ Green just watched the first 10 minutes of the independent Sage briefing every week. It's on Fridays at 1.30. Just tune in. It's on their Twitter, on YouTube. It's entirely free. The first 10 minutes, they always have an expert who's either a mathematician or an epidemiologist just giving a quick briefing with actually good slides rather than government slides. Um, it's, it's superb. That would be my simple recommendation. Just tune into that and tell you everything you need to know. Amazing. Um, Greg Jenner, the legend that is Greg Jenner. Yeah, hello, Greg. I mean, <laughs> uh, to, to have Greg bestow us with a question is uh, something special. Uh, <laughs> Greg grateful. says, Spurs have reportedly been testing an instant COVID test to help get fans into stadiums. How reliable is such tech? Uh, yeah, again, someone has invited me to talk about testing. So <laughs> <laughs> you brought this on yourself, Greg. Buckle in. Um, okay. So about a month ago, we heard that Tottenham were trialling a rapid COVID-19 test at their training ground. I presume this was being used on staff and players because it seems like they've been using the RT-PCR Premier League tests um, as a comparison to work out its efficacy. So this is the so-called NanoSent coronavirus test, which aims to detect volatile organic compounds that you only find in the breath of someone who is infected with coronavirus. So it's, it's basically a coronavirus breathalyzer. So it's a very attractive idea. It's reportedly extremely quick, you know, about 30 seconds and would potentially be a viable way of getting fans back inside the stadium. So you just breathalyze a load of matchday fans. It would be no more arduous or uncomfortable than, than existing security checks, I guess. However, um, it's much less accurate and sensitive than the RT-PCR mm. test that's being used by the Premier League on its players. And it's really intended as a first screening, which can be then used to direct those who test positive to an RT-PCR test. So I'm a bit sceptical about using this as the only testing strategy. Um, NanoSent were also meant to do further trials over the autumn, and I've not heard anything about those yet, so I'd wait for those before making any judgment. I would be concerned about the potential for false negatives if this was the only system. Um, and you might want to bear in mind as well that the gold scent, um, the gold standard for the inventors of the NanoSent test, the NanoSent test is the sniffer dog. That's, that's the accuracy they're trying to get to. So it might just be cheaper and simpler to use the gold standard, which is literally a sniffer dog. Um, if you're going to do this kind of breathalyzer testing. Um, it's also worth remembering what Mark Gillett, the Premier League's medical advisor, was saying earlier about snake oil salesmen trying to sell in magical solutions. There is, in fact, a huge amount of money to be made in this field. Um, and I think it's really important to be critical of some of the claims being made about these new te technologies. Um, yesterday, The Guardian had an exclusive on the results of the mass trials of the Optogene direct RT lamp tests. Uh, people might have seen this report. So these are tests which are a key part of the government's Operation Moonshot plan. So they are 20-minute tests on which the government has spent £323 million for use within hospital and care home staff with no symptoms. 
So the uh, Octagene Direct RT lamp test identified only 46.7% of infections during its trial in Manchester and Southwood last month. So it's perhaps worth noting that James Calder, the government's leader to advisor for testing in sport, was optimistic about fans returning to the grounds because he believed these lamp tests would provide part of the solution. So it's been a it's a complete disaster in terms of a, of a test that they they basically recommended just ditching it because they don't think it can be improved upon the um the report about it says that there are no immediate solutions on offer so it's a bit of a catastrophe and an enormous waste of 323 million but jesus anyway there we go yeah another success <laughs> for the government <laughs> yeah another another huge waste of money that's a drop in the ocean really isn't it yep. I guess following on from that, this question is from, I'm going to read the name of the person who sent it verbatim, David, <laughs> comma, horny for trophies, who is at Big Davo, but the, it's, it's big mate. with two Gs. <laughs> Um, I, I guess that's the, the British equivalent of thick. I'm going to suggest. Uh, he says, Jesus. if he were to be put in charge of a return to stadium program, assuming he has to let some people in, does he have any thoughts on how he would go about it, especially in regards to capacity testing and timeline? Okay, um, this is another question where I don't really have enough expertise to offer like a proper solution. I'll I'll give an educated guess for argument's sake. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat the very boring and obvious answer to this first, which is to say we need find, test, trace, isolate, and support. Like that's the way that you get back to a situation in which you can open up stadiums. That's a very simple, doesn't rely on any kind of like moonshot magical solutions. We can do that already. So we should just get on with that. And then we can think about getting people back into stadiums. Um, I don't know, for argument's sake, presuming I had to let people in, I suppose I'd wait until we have really suppressed the virus. We had some kind of rapid and actually reliable testing, which doesn't really seem to exist at the moment. Um, many people have noted standing outside, properly distanced in a, distanced in a stadium is probably fairly safe but again it's all of the bits in between that which are the problems so it's travels facilities socializing etc so you'd probably only want to offer it to fans who could walk drive or cycle to the stadium to ensure there's no crowding on public transport you'd want to have i don't know staggered entry to prevent queues you'd want to restrict access to indoor facilities you might not be able to get a drink or go to the bathroom you'd want to lower the ground capacity down to reduce any kind of um like super spreading event I honestly, 
I don't know, with all of these conditions, I wouldn't find going to a game to be remotely enjoyable. I think it would just be weird and hollow and stressful. But if people really are that desperate to get in the ground, then I guess that's how you do it. But yeah, I think this, like, I can understand the desire to get back in grounds, but I think what you're going to be offered isn't at all what we might expect as normal. When you put it like that, Alex, it feels like it feels like a million years away, doesn't it? Before yeah. we actually get back to back to football stadiums, which of course is the sensible that's a sensible way of managing things, but is probably um, I mean there's going to be financial pressure on clubs very quickly. Uh, yeah. That that's the thing. That's the thing that's going to force the hand. If anything, it's it's the fact that there's no revenue coming in from gate receipts. Um, Bruno Vidricas, uh, who has been on the podcast before, hello Bruno. He says, do you find it? as unedifying as I do, that journalists on almost every news media outlet seem to be really pushing this get fans back into stadiums narrative. I understand that other often indoor venues are letting people in, but I can't help but think they shouldn't be either. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's been affected by the fact that now people aren't allowed in cinemas or restaurants, but whatever. Um, I think it's a bad argument. I think just because you're allowed to do one risky thing doesn't mean that another risky thing is any less risky. Um Again, like it's not about standing in the stadium, it's getting there, it's what you do afterwards, that's that's where there's problems. Um, I think we should be looking quite carefully at who is driving this and what is actually powering their interest in getting fans back into stadiums. The obvious first player who you've already mentioned, Chris, is the clubs, who I think as football fans we can safely admit have no real interest in the safety or well-being of us. Um, sadly, beyond the impact it has on their bottom line, most clubs are quite happy to exploit us for our money, um, make us trapes all over the globe for huge amounts of expense and don't really have that much interest in how we're doing in normal times, let alone in these times. Um, maybe that's different for smaller clubs. I'm quite willing to believe it is, especially clubs which have much more fan involvement in their direction. Um, so I don't want to say that's true of all clubs, but I think definitely with a club like Tottenham, I do not get the impression that Daniel Levy is particularly interested in our well-being beyond our capacity to keep paying him ticket prices. Um, then there's the media, uh, who sense a popular cause and also have a vested interest in the atmosphere and buzz generated by a crowd, I get the feeling that they are trying to um, win some easy popularity with fans by pushing what's clearly a very popular idea. People want to be back in the grounds. They like the fact that their favourite journalists are pushing this. Um, yeah, I guess there's an attraction there. And I think it shouldn't be missed that like the broadcasters particularly really want fans back because broadcasting a Premier League game without a crowd is a much less valuable product than um, broadcasting one with a crowd in it. So there's a there's a big attraction to the broadcasters, particularly to get fans back, but also journalists, you know, it adds something to talk about. It adds interest to their column. More people are going to read about them if fans are back. Yeah, I think they're worried about people losing interest in the sport as well. You know, there is that. I have talked to people who are losing interest in football. Mm. They do exist. Um, you know, not going to the game every week for a lot of people is, is slowly killing their interest in the game. So there's that as well. Um, I think the group that, who have attracted the least attention, though, are the companies uh, who are trying to sell testing. So the Premier League currently has an agreement with a company called Pronetics, who I've talked about a lot before, to provide their RT-PCR tests. Pronetics are actually pushing really hard to get fans back into grounds. Their chairman, A.V. Lazarar, who's, I think, their chief executive, actually, is using is like really using his public platform and the um, 
the kind of like huge public profile he's he's gained by being in charge of the Premier, the supplying the Premier League with with their RT PCR tests to really push this idea that they can get fans safely back into the grounds. So Frenetics and Lazarus' proposal is a combination of Frenetics' new rapid tests. They've just bought, I think it cost them a vast amount of money, but Frenetics have actually just bought one of Oxford's rapid tests that they've developed. So um, they, they bought from Oxford University a, a new form of rapid testing for yeah, a great deal of money. Um, they, so they yeah they want to use some form of rapid testing and this would then give you a health passport on your smartphone. If you received a negative test, you'd be able to access the stadium by just scanning a QR code on the device. So Prenetics know that there is a potential fortune to be made here because every fan who wanted to attend a game would have to get tested, would have to have this downloaded on their phone. It's a perfect captive market. And there's been quite quiet suggestions, but that the cost of this test would simply be added to the price of a stadium ticket. So I think that adds a whole other load of questions about who's being asked to shoulder this cost. And I, I think we should, as fans, be very resistant to the idea that we should shoulder the cost of our own testing um, when the clubs are the ones who are really desperate to get us back in. You know, if the broadcasters, if the clubs are so desperate to get us back in the stadium, then at the very least they should be paying our testing for it. That would be so typically football, wouldn't it? Um... Yeah. <laughs> they just add the cost on top of the, the ticket as if there aren't enough costs associated with going to football already. Absolutely. Uh, it was really fascinating to hear you talk about people who are simply falling out of love with football. And I think that's actually been really quite common. This has certainly exposed many of the things that people dislike about modern football. Yeah. And of course, it's taken away the thing people love about football the most, which is actually you know the sense of community and going to games and, and, yeah. and being part of something greater with other fans and yeah, the, the pay-per-view hasn't helped for certain, and, and, and the talk of this sort of breakaway Super League, but this this pandemic has certainly made people question their loyalty, I think. Um, final one, Alex, and you know, thank you so much for, for all, all of the preparation you've done to, to answer these questions in such <laughs> no, a no, thorough no, way. Um, I, I thought this was a really kind of interesting philosophical point to end on. This is from Chadwick, who is King Chadwick on Twitter. Why, as a people... Can't we make sacrifices for the common good? So this is an interesting question because it comes up a lot and actually it's been coming up as well a lot in the press lately in terms of this discussion about pandemic fatigue and the idea that people are getting tired of all of these measures. Um, it's a line that's been seized upon by the government in particular. They've really been pushing the idea that people got lax over the summer, that they relaxed, that they didn't follow social distancing, that they got uh, you know happy about like going out too much which I think kind of neglects the fact that the government were telling everyone to go back to normal, we're telling people, we're paying people to go to restaurants and so on, but that's an aside. Anyway, so there's been this whole narrative about pandemic fatigue, that people don't want to help each other, that they can't sacrifice little things for the greater good. I think all the evidence is this is simply untrue. Um, all of the evidence that we have is that people want to help. They want to isolate, they want to socially distance, they want to protect the NHS. Um, let's think about that figure about isolation, about isolation that I, I mentioned earlier. So 70% of people intend to isolate, but 82% of those who should isolate end up not being able to do so. The government's own research suggests that people failing to properly self-isolate are young, poor, 
have both dependents and precarious jobs in key worker sectors, and also that these people do not receive any real government support. The UK has the lowest mandatory sick pay for COVID-19 sufferers in the OECD as a proportion of the average workers' earnings. So people want to help, but they can't sacrifice their livelihoods or their well-being of their loved ones to do so. This is very understandable. Mm. I think, quite simply, we need to help people to help each other. We need proper, universal, generous support. And that is the only way that we build compliance and get this coronavirus under control. People want to do the right thing. Like, no one wants people to die, or very few people do. The vast majority of people want to get coronavirus under control. They want to stop living in this, like, half-lockdown, half-normality, half-lockdown, half-normality. No one wants to live in this kind of endless cycle of, of release and lockdown. People want to get this under control, but the government is not giving them the opportunity to do so. Like, we need to support people. We can't just expect people to lock themselves in their houses for two weeks with no support. Like, for a vast majority of people, that's like, that's oblivion. You know, you can't feed yourself, you can't feed your family, you can't pay rent. It's it's completely unrealistic. And the derisory support that the government offers those people at the moment is frankly insulting. So yeah, we need properly supported isolation. And then we will get people to isolate. I think that's true of everything else. You know, it really is as simple as people want to help. They just aren't being helped to do so. So people can make sacrifices for the common good if people look out for them. I think it really is that simple. Amazing place to end. Um, Alex, I, I, in some ways, I, I, I don't want you to come back on this podcast yeah, uh, let's hope not. I fear, I fear that you might be coming on in a couple of months, and you might be saying, "I told you so." Um, <laughs> let's hope, hope that's not yeah. the case. Let's hope that things change. Yeah. Um, but, but I really want to say honestly, thank you so much for everything you've done to to inform me and our listeners. It's been hugely, hugely appreciated of all the time and effort you've put into this research and. You know your your passion for for knowledge is incredible, and um, it's it's really appreciated. It's really really appreciated. No, and I think the one thing that I'd say before before we finish, because I'm sure people have lives that they want to get onto beyond this podcast as well, um, is that I think something that's really been understated by people, and which I think might be getting mixed in the message of listening to the experts, is for people to to read stuff themselves, like. It can appear complicated, it can appear intimidating, but I really think the vast majority of people have the capacity to understand this stuff. I would encourage anyone who can to try to listen to Independent Sage on a Friday at least once in the next month or so, just to realise that what might seem confusing and complicated when it comes from the government, if explained by someone who's actually invested in getting you to understand it, can be explained really well and you will get it. And um, I think... We all need to try and inform ourselves as much as possible and also dispel this idea that we just have to surrender everything to to people who are paid to think about it. Like everyone is capable of understanding this pandemic. Everyone is capable of understanding how to how to like end it. And until we get that kind of general knowledge amongst the population, I think we're going to struggle to really get it under control, no matter the best intentions of all of the experts we could possibly assemble. It's up to us. It's up to all of us. Um, and, and I really think we can do it if the government lets us. But yeah, um, I would really encourage everyone, like, you know, this stuff is out there. If you have time, if you have the energy, please do try and like, yeah, find out more about it because I really think it's within everyone's capacity to understand what's going on. It's a great point. It's a, it's a really good point. And I, I've certainly forced myself to do more reading than I felt 
or feel comfortable with, frankly, because uh, I, I do think it's important to be informed. Um, I, Alex, I'm not going to give your your Twitter handle because it's a bit fiddly. But what we'll do is we'll we'll tweet it out, and I'll also yeah. put it in the show notes as well. So if people want to get in touch with you, they they can do. Um, but once again, thank you so much for your time. It's it's greatly appreciated. And uh, to to listeners, we'll we'll see you soon. Absolutely. Cheers, everyone. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Bardi for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindmer for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and his SoundCloud D Lindmer. Do check him out, he's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.